0: So thank you all for coming. It's sort of interesting to be on this side of the podium. I've spent so many years on the other side. Um, I'm going to tell you about how we came together and then riff on one concept. Uh, The first thing is that we all got together uh, in February, March 2010. We and many others came together at a critical code studies conference online Uh, over a period of six weeks. We participated in six threaded discussions about snippets of code. On the third week, Nick posted a single line of code, and John Bell was the first to respond to that thread. In the end, all ten of us had something to say about this one-liner, and Nick invited us to write an entire book about the single-line program. It's written in basic for Commodore 64. We wrote the book collectively and in a single voice, using a wiki to outline it and draft it. We started writing. We realized early on that we ought to have small teams, and so we broke up into small teams. We formed groups shaped by what we thought we could contribute to the chapters we had agreed on. Someone took the lead for researching and drafting each each section with another writer or two. And as these drafts were finished, we handed our sections off to the rest of the group for editing, for more ideas, changes of direction, et cetera, depending on what was pending elsewhere. When all was said and done, we'd all somehow worked on each section. Then, with the guidance of the MIT Press, whom we thank for their part in all of this, we copy edited, sought permissions, and indexed the content. And finally, Casey Rees designed the book, the cover, the fonts, the layout, the colors, the paper, all of it. The whole time, we communicated by email, Skype, telephone, text, messages. It turns out, if my memory is correct, we never were all in the same room or virtual space at once, though there was at least one face-to-face breakout writing session on the West Coast. Some of us have still never met in person. Some of us just met in person this evening. Uh, Throughout, Nick kept us... It kept in touch with everyone, even as life intervened. In the roughly 18 months it took us to organize, write, copy, edit, index, and submit our manuscript to the press. Several people published other books and articles. At least one of us had a child. One was on sabbatical. One got tenure. One finished and defended his PhD. And one, it seems, was secretly thinking of getting married. And there were probably other life-changing events I never heard about. Life outside of our group was also active, productive, and creative. Because there were ten of us, we managed to keep our collective momentum. This is crucial. It didn't take ten times as long to write and get published as a single author might have needed, and it's it's a far different accomplishment than any one of us might have attained alone. Ten authors meant that we not only brought different backgrounds and skills to the job, but that this particular book could never have been written by a single one of us. I suspect I'm not the only one to have learned a great deal from this entire experience. Writing this book spoke to my lifelong interest in translation, in the transmission and circulation of cultural work, and also in how members of a, cultural, of a culture translate ideas among themselves. I'm not a programmer. When I began, on this project I could not read this line of code or understand it nor could I more importantly run it. All I could tell was that it started and ended with 10 and looked loopy as I indicated in the thread that landed me here tonight three years later. So at first I sat back and watched and listened as messages flew furiously among my colleagues. I noticed how these natives of BASIC Started sending each other emails with new versions of the 10 print code. Early on, I asked for visualizations of the code my co authors were writing. I also asked for audio readings of the line, thinking it might, the line of code, thinking it might help me understand. All the readings were different, and what I learned is that people who use computer languages speak them differently. I also confirmed something I already know, knew, something we all know, that is to learn anything about anything, we need to create at least a slight difference, a variant, to first perceive and then to understand the differences that make a difference in something. On a slightly larger scale, we do it frequently, frequently when we speak. We ask for rephrasings, we reword things, and that's what my co-authors were doing with this line of code. It's called porting code, and there are, many re- there are many reasons to port code, before you correct me, let me just keep going here. Porting code is what programmers do to get a program to run on, another pla- on a platform other than the one it was designed to run on. A program written to run on a PC, say, will have to be changed and, some- and sometimes entirely rewritten to run smoothly on another platform. Porting code is about optimizing the code so its execution is smooth in software and hardware environments it wasn't written for in the first place like translation or localization, it intends to naturalize language in a foreign environment. But there are other reasons to port code, one in particular that my my co-authors indulged in playfully to my delight and to the benefit of readers of this book. Modifying the 10 print line of code and writing variations of it for other platforms are a way of understanding how it works in its native Commodore 64 environment in contrast to other environments. The book contains a number of ports. The better to make sense of the differences among the languages and platforms involved. So I'd like to give you one example. Uh, Before I close, in the section of the book we call a port to Atari VCS, we outline what porting 10 print to the VCS involves coding the characters, building the walls, covering the screen, and bounding the maze. The process of figuring these things out emerged from attempts at translating or porting the code from a language the C64 understands to one the VCS can understand. For example, and I'm just going to read you one bullet point of the kind of thing that changed. The Atari does not have predefined character bitmaps, grids of pixels to represent each glyph, as the Commodore 64 does, making it necessary to create the patterns corresponding to the diagonal characters from scratch. They're not open. Now, I did print out a few. Here, would you just hand these? This is what it looks like on a VCS as distinct from what you've all seen on a C64. Just as with translating natural languages, it is at times impossible to port exactly, and yet we managed willy-nilly to make our meanings clear to another culture or to accommodate code on on other platforms. By porting this particular one-liner, my co-authors uncovered details they hadn't yet encountered or fully worked out about the workings and affordances of the languages and platforms they played with. In closing then, when struggling with porting or translating, reseed, replant, rewrite, rephrase, swerve. And while you're looking at looking for the mot juste to identify the je ne sais quoi in the magic of code, if you see a fork in the road, take it. Thank you.
1: Uh, pardon if this is kind of the clumsy hitting off the mic and everything. Uh, my name is uh, Mark Sample. And uh, I just want to um, kind of emphasize something that um, Patsy mentioned, uh, talking about translation, porting as an act of translation. I, of the ten of us, I think four of us, maybe five, have PhDs in literature. We're not programmers. We didn't study code. We didn't... We didn't um, you know, have a scientific education. We studied books and texts and poetry. Um, so when we approached Timprint and uh, the line of code, uh, at least half of us really saw it in terms of uh, t- a text. And we also, I mean, so a lot of the language that we use, translation, uh, it comes from this, this textual tradition that we operate in. In the back of Timprint, there's a whole um, like a, appendix of textual variants that you might find of you know, variants of Shakespeare or something, of, of, of Othello, we have variants of this program as it appeared in the wild. And there are dozens of them, dozens of, of ways of kind of uh, modifying the same program. Similarly, uh, many people, uh, many of us, don't have a Commodore 64, like what Nick is running right here, to, to operate the program on our own. So we, we used an emulator, which um, VICE is one of the emulators we mention in the book. Anyone can download it and run it on your Mac or PC. But uh, we talk about emulators as a software addition of a piece of hardware. So we're we're talking about computers in terms of additions, a word that we usually you know, reserve for text. So I just want to kind of emphasize this this kind of textual nature, textual approach that we took um, to 10 print. And w- one of the things that drew me to the program was the randomness of it. I mean, the the program, the heart of it is is this randomness. Can can you do a variation that has very little randomness in it? or no randomness, so we can see? Um... <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is not a random program. And, and it's that flip-flopping of those graphical characters that uh, early on we argued about whether they were f- f- slashes or f- hash marks, Like, what what were we going to call these graphical characters? Um, it's that that randomness that really gives it the texture. Um, and and by varying the randomness, you can actually it, it feels less maze-like. So there's slight randomness there. But what, what, uh, what fascinated me and I fascinated some of us is that randomness is it's kind of an edge concept. It's essential for play and games, deck of cards, video games. Uh, randomness is essential for these acts of play. But it's also essential for very serious endeavors. Any kind of statistical uh, simulation requires randomness to be factored into it. So, for instance, a simulation of a nuclear attack. So randomness has this kind of... It's a threshold concept between play and the very seriousness. And I think uh, looking at Timprint through the, through the idea of randomness uh, opens up um, more than just what's going on in the Commodore 64. So let me just say a few things about randomness here. Um, one thing that is um, really kind of... We forget when we talk about randomness, and this is, this is true for the Commodore 64... It's often actually what uh, people call random, or I'm sorry, pseudo randomness. It's not real randomness. It's uh, randomness that just only looks random, but if you have a large enough sample, you can see it to start repeating itself. And the reason you need pseudo randomness is because if you're running a large scale statistical simulation, you need to have unknown variables, but you also need to repeat those unknown variables every time you run that simulation so you can control for some other experimental uh, unknown outcome. So, um, that's an interesting one. <laughs> um, now, this need for reusable pools of random numbers explains the popularity of books like the Rand Corporation's, I love this title, A Million Random Digits with 100,000 Normal Deviates." This was a book that was published in 1955, and like it says, it's a book that just has columns and columns of a, 100 of a million random numbers. I'm not 100 million, just a million, sorry just a million random numbers. It's still being sold today. You can buy the book on Amazon. And you know, as a side note, it's funny to read the customer reviews of the book. They complain about the, it's, it's all random, except those little numbers on the side of the page, the lower left-hand and right-hand corner, are in sequential order. What's wrong with that? But anyway, this book was published by the Rand Corporation in 1955, and it's uh, no coincidence that the Rand Corporation was the research and development arm of the US Air Force. In fact, many of the, much of the early work on randomness in computing was done by the Atomic Energy Commission or the U.S. Armed Forces. So when we're playing with uh, any any kind of um, computing device that is uh, relying on randomness, we're actually str- like tapped into a history of computing that goes back to the Cold War. It was uh, John von Neumann who was the first to propose using a computer to... Um, produce random numbers, and he needed this. He was fresh off the Manhattan Project and was starting to work on the hydrogen bomb project. And to, to run nuclear fission simulations, they needed to have this great pool of random numbers. And he proposed a computer program that essentially uh, took a number, a seed. You start off with a, a, a number that you've somehow selected. You square it, and then you pick the two middle digits, and you square those again, and then you produce... It's called the middle square method... It produces random numbers. Well, obviously, they're not random. It's actually completely deterministic. But this was the first computer program designed to um, produce random numbers. We talk about it in the, in the book a little bit. So what about the Commodore 64? How does the Commodore 64 uh, produce randomness? And, uh, it's, um, this is one of those instances where the material aspects of the computer, like the, the actual the, the chips, the kernels, the operating system really play a part uh, to understand what's going on here. Um, the R&D function, the random function, is one of the, the ten basic mathematical functions that's been included in BASIC since BASIC was um, designed at Dartmouth in the mid-1960s. The general way um, to d- use random numbers on the Commodore 64 and the one that's in the kind of default version of the program that the book's title is um, is actually pseudo-random. The first time RND1, one, random 1, is invoked, after you turn on a machine, it always produces .1850... Well, you have to reset the system, right? So um, if, you turn on, if you turn on your Commodore 64 and haven't done anything else with it and you type RND1, it will always produce .185564016. And okay, Nick's going to reboot. Uh, so it doesn't matter if you did this in 1984 or if you're doing it today in 2000. And then if you run it again, it'll always produce, the, the next number will be completely deterministic as well. So what looks to be random is, is not random at all. So if everybody had their Commodore 64, turn it on and typed in the uh, 10 print program, the maze would look the same on all those computers. It's not random at all. So you know what we what we think of randomness is 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 not often so. Uh, but the Commodore 64 also has at least two other pr- um, ways of, of producing randomness. Um, you could do instead of d one, you can put a zero in. You want to do that? And this calls upon the um, the, the timer, this is a time-based function, so it measures basically in seconds the, the time uh, between when the Commodore 64 was p- first powered on and when you run the program. So this, this will be a much more random number. And finally, you could also, if you want to set a seed number, you could do RND like negative 17, and that will produce a seed that you can then use as a base to, to generate random numbers. Um, And finally, and this is something Noah knows much better than I do, you can tap into the Commodore 64's sound card. It wasn't a sound card. It was a sound chip. It's a very sophisticated sound chip at the time. One of the three oscillators, uh, you could use it to produce random numbers. Um, And from what we can tell, it actually doesn't produce... The numbers are random, but it doesn't produce every random number. So there are some numbers it will never generate. Which, in, I guess, is, it would not make it randomness at all. Um, I'll stop right there. But I think th- what's really just kind of cr- um, crucial to understand is that what we think of randomness is, is often not random at all. And, and to really get at it, you have to literally, not literally, you could, but figuratively kind of crack open the machine and see what's going on inside. I won't crack open this one. <laughs> so
2: and now we're going to talk about basic, right? So thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, one of the things that is, um, is quite fascinating about uh, the Commodore 64 is your ability to, um, even while holding a microphone with one hand, uh, very quickly after you turn it on, it takes only five seconds to start up and produce a video signal. And um, you can type in a short program, one of these one-line programs. And... Run it and see what happens. And not only that, but really within a minute, you can begin making modifications. I made some already, but make a different one. I'll change the value after the decimal point. What's 0.5 to begin with, I made into 0.1. And we have something which, to some extent, we could call less random. Really, it's as random, it's just choosing from a different distribution. In this distribution, the left leaning line, diagonal line there, is you know, nine times as uh, frequent as the right-leaning line. But we're still picking using the same random process. We're just choosing from a different distribution by changing that 5 to a 1. And we could wonder, you know, to what extent can we, uh, can we tell? What if we change it to 3? How does that distribution look to us? Can we tell that it's not the uniform distribution, well, maybe if we know to begin with, we can see that there's longer stretches of lines that are occurring on that left diagonal, but it looks you know, fairly uh, uh, difficult to discern. We could, we could bring our friends in and get them to guess whether or not it was the uniform distribution or not. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of possibilities, and this is just afforded by the system that you're provided with. I brought this Commodore 64 here with no media. It doesn't have a cartridge. It doesn't have uh, cassette tape. It doesn't have a disk drive. Um, doesn't have a modem to uh, access things online. We just turn it on, we type it in, and we have immediate access to computation by writing these sorts of programs. So I think John's going to speak more about what BASIC was and what that meant for us culturally and where that uh, impulse went. Um, But I want to also mention some things about the origins of the BASIC programming language and take a different sort of literary perspective. Consider things from the standpoint of material history and look at um, specifically, how systems like this one—this is a circa 1975—print terminal. You know how they factored in the history of computing and the creation, eventually, of a program like this. So this here is a—it's a system that uh, it works still. Uh, can be plugged in, and um, uh, the thermal paper, you know, uh, still functions. You can run it at, certainly in local mode. If you can find an analog phone, you can plug in to the uh, acoustic coupler on the back. This is a portable terminal. So if you're going home for the weekend, you still wanted access to the computer in the mid-70s, you pick this up and put it in your car. And you'd be able to uh, make a connection. And um, as an undergraduate who was looking at this uh, the other day in my office said, "You know, where's the screen? (laughs) Um, It does not have a screen. It's a print terminal. So everything appeared um, as on a printer or fax machine. I find this interesting for a variety of reasons. You know, one is that we often essentialize the screen as being the critical aspect of new media. And it's, it's even uh, put forth in, in our colleague uh, Sherry Turkle's book, Life on the Screen, in which she writes about systems, including uh, ELIZA, which was not ever shown originally on screens. It was actually interact- created and interacted with on print terminals like this one. The basic programming language is also something that was developed on these sorts of systems. And uh, it was not a dot matrix uh, portable terminal like this, but ASR 33 teletypes at Dartmouth from 1963 to 1965. John Kemeny and Thomas Kurtz, working with a team of three undergraduates, developed uh, a language that sometimes is derided, but more often remembered quite fondly by people today as an early way that they had experience with programming. And it brought programming education to millions of people. So at Dartmouth, they... uh, have a liberal arts college, it's not an engineering school like MIT, and they decided we're just going to teach everyone here how to program. That's going to be an essential aspect of how it is education is conducted, people need to know about computation, this is going to be important to being an educated person, and generally, and uh, they developed this language. And they did it um, with a small team of people, with a system like this, thinking about things like Fortran, and Algol, and uh, earlier high-level languages but also with consideration for users who might not be able to uh, use this type of system all the time, remember all the commands with facility. So they they took uh, pains to try to provide a syntax that was possible, allow you to figure things out by typing and using the system itself. But the thing I want to mention here is that this um, program itself here, from uh, the early 1980s, for initially the Commodore VIC-20 then the Commodore 64, Right, uh, bears traces of its history. Now, it's perfectly naturalized to us today that when we see a computer program that uses the command print, we think, oh, well, that means display something to the screen. Well, that is not what the word print means in most contexts today, and it's certainly not what the word print me- meant in the mid-1960s when BASIC was developed at Dartmouth. The reason that word is there and the reason that today it means present something on a video screen is because in 1965 it meant literally print something out. And so that's part of uh, a history of material texts that is engaged with the material history of computing and the way that computers interact in our culture. And there's actually other signs that BASIC was developed for systems like this. And one of them is that number 10 at the beginning. So we could ask all sorts of questions about it, like, why is it the number 10? Uh, one of the reasons that it is 10 rather than some other number is because conventionalized basic programming practice is to number your lines, spacing them out by 10, so that if you decided you needed to go back and change the program or modify it, there would be room. You wouldn't have to renumber things and rework the way that your go-to statements and other references to line numbers functioned. So that's part of an answer. that's why we have 10 instead of 1 or Even zero, which is allowed on the Commodore 64, is a line number. But beyond that, we might ask, why is there a number there at all? Because when we look at a C program, a Python program, when we look at contemporary computer programs, they don't have line numbers at the beginning. And BASIC, in fact, doesn't need line numbers. There are variants of BASIC that were developed, Visual BASIC, Quick BASIC, and others, that dispensed with line numbers you might want to label a particular line to be able to refer to it, but you could do that the way it's done in assembly language, which is explicitly adding a label, saying loop, you know, and then referring to loop later on. Why this number? Well, it turns out that having your lines numbered in this way is particularly convenient if you're using a system like this to enter and edit your programs and to determine how your programs work. If you're using a print terminal um, and you have... Uh, a very, you can't look at things a screen at a time. You don't have a screen. <laughs> you just have a printer. But This allows you to list ranges of lines. So if there are lines uh, 20 through 50 that you want to look at, you can, you can specify one of these. Um, it allows you to um, delete lines very easily. If you want to get rid of line 10, you just type 10 and press enter, and the line is gone. Um, So the presence of those lines at all actually relates more to the capabilities of text editing on a system like this than it does to any inherent aspect of the program uh, or the nature of the programming language. You have to renumber also when you work on that. so I want to mention just a few other things before I uh, hand this on. That um, there's other ways in which the material culture of print is significant to computing, not just as a display technology. That less than 20 years after the invention of BASIC, you know, its ghost, its shadow, is felt on the consumer model of the Commodore 64, this you know massively well well-selling computer. But also in the way that the program is circulated in. Uh, Context like this, that in the Commodore Users Guide, this um, this program is uh, made available in print. Someone can type it in. It's it's a little harder to do when you have pages and pages of text, but people are willing to do it in a lot of cases in the late 70s and early 80s. But for one-line programs, it's not at all a bad way, um, particularly when people are interested in understanding how they work as well as seeing them function. And magazines like Run, which is one place that uh, the first place actually that a one-line version of this 10 print program appeared, right, are also places where code is distributed in print. So these are uh, a few of the aspects of um, what we wouldn't generally consider, you know, computer media. If I brought my Commodore 64, I said, oh, I brought some physical media, too, with some programs on it. Here you go, right? People might be very surprised. They would expect a floppy disk, an SD drive, something like this. But Things are transmitted this way as well, and this is part of the culture and uh, history of uh, the way that BASIC originated, and much of it was brought over to the Commodore 64 where it further developed. So I'm going to let John mention some more about the way the BASIC programming language
3: lived and has lived on. Uh, So can you just go back and reboot again? Because I just want to bring that back up for a second. So uh, just to to go back to something that Patsy was talking about at the beginning, how we got into this, right? Nick put this one-liner up on this online conference we were going to, and as she said, I was the first one to respond. Well, why was I the first one to respond? Uh, Largely because I remembered the same one-liner that he did randomly from 30 years ago. Um, That... Says something. I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't be able to reproduce a line of Python or Java that I was writing two weeks ago, much less this basic line from 30 years ago. Um, so, right, it, it's sticking with you. Uh, and that was very interesting to me. Why do we remember these things? Why do we want to go back and write this book about it? You know, what's significant about it? Um, in looking at how this... Uh, how BASIC developed over these years. Uh, yeah, there's a nostalgia factor involved in it. The Commodore 64 is about as old as I am. Uh, so my first memories, literally, I, I learned to program within about a year of learning to read, so this is you know, the, the very beginning of my history, right? Uh, but in a larger context, I wasn't the only one that was doing these things. Right There's an entire generation of people that grew up during this period that looked at BASIC as the way that you interact with a computer. Uh, it, it, there's a, a very important uh, line that is drawn at this point between a user and a programmer. Right, The programmers are the ones that go in and they create things. The users are the ones that go in and they click on the icons and something pops up and they type in text. But... At this point, that line was very thin. Yes, you could go and you could get commercial things, but these print magazines that were being distributed, they had the code in it. If you wanted to run a game, you type in two or three pages of code and you run it, right? Uh, and that's something that, as we have made systems more complex, that we've lost in a lot of ways since then. Um, I was trying to think of it on the way down, Uh, driving down from Maine, my five-hour trip, um, trying to figure out, is there, since the development of the graphical interface, has there ever been a system that you could just boot to this and get a prompt where you can immediately start programming something? Uh, I mean, you can make an argument that, you know, people still use various nixes with uh, shell scripting, all this sort of stuff, but, that's not the way that users are used to relating to the computer anymore, right? They're used to clicking on icons and dragging things around. So a a shell script isn't going to be a user domain sort of thing. It's going to be a programmer domain sort of thing. So how can we now start to look at this and say, okay, we have this generation of programmers that was interested in BASIC at the command line. What can we do now to bring it forward and say, These graphical users, how can they become interested in the same way? How can they become both user and programmer? Um, I think that there's a couple of different uh, possibilities. I haven't really seen it be completely successfully done since then. Uh, In the book, one of the things that we argue, or uh, I'll I'll specify myself, because I know there were some dissent on this, but uh, (laughs) one of the things that uh, I'm arguing is that the real successor to Basic is HTML. Uh, if you look at how HTML developed over the years, right, it came out early on, but the key feature that really made it popular is view source. Right, you can go into Mosaic, say view source, go look at it, and say, oh, okay, I see what a B tag does. Right, and so the <laughs> language itself became transmissible in that way. Uh, now, the next generation. You know, we've gone from this uh, basic. So yeah, go ahead uh, and make it more interesting, so that we can actually get some background noise going here. Um. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, so we we've got you know the web coming up. Uh, we've gone from you know, this basic uh, this standalone computer sort of idea of basic. We've got the web and HTML. What's the next thing going to be that actually hits this level of low entry point and high reward? Um, Are you going to write all of Mosaic, too, or just? (laughs) We're going to need an interpreter for this, too. Um, so, so what's the next thing? I mean, I, I've seen a lot of things. I, I think that a lot of people at this point would say, well, the next thing on the horizon is, you know, physical computing or bits to atoms or something like that. Um, Arduino's out now, has been out for a while. You've got BeagleBones. You've got Basic Stamps have been out forever. Uh, but they haven't done quite the same thing as Basic or HTML did before them they haven't gotten to the point of simplicity where a user can show up and start uh, playing with it and <laughs> and uh, and really produce something that now you can go start typing HTML into even though it doesn't actually have any concept of what HTML is. So um, the, all these physical computing sort of uh, microcontrollers uh, They're trying to achieve the same thing that BASIC already achieved 30 years ago. They're trying to get simplicity down to the level where people can get on board with them. Uh, But if you look at both BASIC and HTML as predecessors, there's another danger involved here, right? Because BASIC, after this point, it starts uh, going back up the complexity curve. Right, it starts splitting. It goes into Visual Basic, it goes into QBasics, and all kinds of different things. Uh, same thing happened with HTML. HTML 1 was very easy. You put a B tag around a piece of text; it makes it bold. Uh, HTML 5 and CSS 3—it's a little bit more complex. Right, you can still do those things because of reverse compatibility, but you still—if you want to do more advanced features, which most websites do. You have to go in and have lots of different files. Uh, You might have to branch between different browsers, so let's go learn jQuery because that's going to solve our problem of it works in IE but not in Firefox. Uh, So it's now gone up that complexity curve too. Um, I think I've started to see the same thing with Arduino, right? If you look at Arduinos now, uh, go out and buy shields and start tacking, uh, putting them on top of each other, Uh, the complexity has already gone up. The question is, did enough people get on board the Arduino when it was at that low point of complexity to actually make it the kind of technology that will go forward and be remembered in 30 years? Because that's what you need. You you need a critical mass of it. Uh, And I think that's an open question. Um, But if you were going to do this, right, independent of Arduino, independent of any particular technology if you were going to try to recreate this now in this modern era of graphical interfaces and all of these different things, how would you do it? I honestly don't know. I think that it's something that people have tried to do with, well, we're at MIT, so scratch, things like that, uh, but it still isn't going to be the same because it's not uh, booting to a scratch prompt, basically. Um, So I, I think that... That's really one of the values in going back and looking at this program is trying to see, okay, what happened there and how can we reproduce it in the future? So I think you were also going to talk about the future a little bit, maybe? (laughs) Okay.
4: Thank you very much. Uh, I think this ought to dovetail okay with uh, what we were talking about. Uh, So first I wanted to uh, uh, share a quote from Plato who said something about uh, those who try to act from outside their culture will never be understood, much less believed, by the other people who are uh, fully entrenched in the culture. So what does that mean for people who um, not even necessarily are in the culture or inside of it, but are uh, creating that culture? And what does that mean about the believability and understandability of people who are uh, interpreting recently past culture for everybody else, such as we are doing today. So you're going to have to uh, exercise a lot of your own judgment and imagination in interpreting what we're doing here. Uh, so to get, just to get you thinking along uh, in an analogic mode a little bit, Uh, I wanted to uh, share something that I learned from the show Parks and Recreation. don't know if you've ever seen it or if you uh, have too much time working on school. There was an episode recently where they were arguing about school lunches, and someone said, well, you classified napkins as a vegetable, right? Does anyone who hasn't seen the show or seen the show remember how they're able to classify napkins as a vegetable? Well, they're made from plants, right? So, so you go from, from plants to, well, from vegetables to plants to paper. And suddenly, you know, it's, it's, it's no longer nutritive. You lost something along the way. But there was a fluidity. Uh, there's still something of the original left. It's just transformed as it reaches these different contexts. What I have now on my plate is now a napkin. And yes, it, it is plant-like. And I could have made it from bell peppers, probably. Anyone has ever made pepper here? Uh, so, <laughs> paper. I mean, from pepper. So one of the things when you when you read ten print and you think about us as this uh, collaborative, as this collaboration, you say, okay, these ten people got together for a year, or two years online, and they poured all this energy. Why? Why are they doing this? What am I supposed to get out of it? Was it just something for them? Uh, is what can I get out of it? And so what I what I really wanted to talk about was how to use these. Uh, analogic modes of, of thinking to, to make use of our process in your own work. Uh, so, so before I do that, I have just a few assumptions that I wanted to bring into this. Uh, it's, it's always good to clarify your assumptions, so I wrote mine down for all of us. First of all, one of the assumptions that I wanted to make, or, or, or I wanted to, to bring out, is that uh, the people who are reading Run Magazine back in the 1980s, the people who are typing this program in, Back when it was uh, contemporary or current, uh, that they all went on to be extremely rich and famous and successful in everything that they did, so we 're just going to assume that if, if anyone wants to challenge that uh, then then bring in someone who 's unsuccessful who remembers this program. <laughs> I will amend my statement uh, <laughs> one of the uh, one of the other, one of the other assumptions that I wanted to make here is. Uh, Quite simply, that we see, uh, that we, is Marshall McLuhan's assumption that we see technologies as, as extensions of man. And so that everything that you see here that's taking place in uh, mainly the electrical domain, in the silicon domain, all the decisions that are, that are happening in the print domain, that those are extensions of, as I paraphrase it, things we'd like to do with each other, uh, cooperation we'd like to make as a species, work we'd like to get done. So, from uh, that system, I have to write this stuff down because (laughs) when I I think, so when we get to, when when we get to this one crystallized nugget of a program, 10 print character string 205.5 plus random one, uh, semicolon, colon, go to 10, why is it so important that we memorize this? Okay, uh, you don't have to memorize it. (laughs) Don't, you know, sorry. (laughs) <laughs> you you really should though, but you don't you don't have to. Uh, what I really want you to do is to realize the significance of it, and then say, okay, this structure, this sort of super crystalline cluster of stuff that came together to form these characters and this statement. Can we can you just type it in at the top of the screen so everybody can look at it while I'm saying this? Why remember this this end character sequence? Is that th- this represents not only uh, one moment on time, but it spreads out backwards in time and it spreads out uh, in space across to different platforms. Uh, in in the book, we made a huge point of showing s- this program and similar programs as Patsy reminded, uh, on the Atari VCS 2600 and a number of other platforms, the the Vic 20, the TRS-80. Uh, and, of course, JavaScript, so we could see it in contemporary browsers. And so you can see that it could probably keep going forward, this little assemblage of, of modules. So w- what I think would be useful is if people realize that this is, uh, this is a confluence of favorable circumstances. And when you look at it on the Commodore 64, it's a coming together of a couple key elements. One of them we talked a little bit about is randomness. Uh, The idea that you have a random element in whatever system that you have. Uh, We also talk in the book a little bit about sequencing, about the idea of having a line number 10 and another line number 20, 30 and a loop. These are going to be common elements in any system that you're going to encounter. And being in the MIT community, I know that all of you for the rest of your lives are going to continue to encounter all kinds of systems. Whether you buy some IKEA furniture, or you, you know you just buy a new car and you're trying to figure out the stereo, or maybe you're trying to grow a website. So uh, we have this concept of a platform, so I'm leading you up to thinking about how you grow platforms. So uh, what, what we've shown is the Commodore 64 is this one platform, and there were numerous other platforms out there, such as the Atari, such as the VIC-20, uh, leading all the way up to the modern web platform. So, I want, I want you to use our process to read the book and to think about the intensity, um, that, that we followed certain paths down and say, say to yourself, if I'm ever going to create any kind of system that people are still going to be talking about 30 years later, uh, you know I've got to put the same energy into it. So that leads me to one of the things about the program that... Uh, <laughs> it's very amusing to note that nobody has mentioned so far, and it's probably because it's been, it was such an intense experience for us. That's the fact... Thank you, Patsy. It's the fact that this program makes a maze. Okay? So if you're going to make a kind of crystallized system that's going to last and be portable, carried from platform to platform bearing the momentum of previous platforms, in other words, enabling and facilitating your collaborators uh, to take your work and to push it forward, to carry it forward into something new and even better. You have to have a killer demo. (laughs) So you have to have some kind of point, like we've shown you a bunch of one-liners here, and, and, and perhaps not all of them resonate. But we, we believe that the concept of a maze, which is what the, the fundamental program generates, we, we believe that that is a, a, a solid enough concept to, to carry it forward. In other words, when we're thinking about uh, taking the magazine and sharing the information th- with each other uh, through publishing, through visiting one another at each other's houses and saying, hey, Mark, let me show you this cool program, uh, carrying this cultural message further... Uh, we, you better have something that that really resonates with the other person, and uh, I'll just give you a little taste of of why the maze is such a resonant symbol. You, you probably think, oh yeah, a maze, that's fun, it's a puzzle. You know, I do those on board on the train or whatever. I never buy those magazines when I'm waiting for a pizza. It's on the menu or something like that. That's that's just the that's just. Uh, would you say, capitalism speaking, uh, you know, we need, we need a flat thing to keep people occupied. Someone come up with a commercial solution. Oh, we have lithography, get someone, some artist, put something interesting on there. But really, uh, w- the very first chapter in our book uh, is is a painstaking exploration of the concept, that, that's a quote from a review, <laughs> so it's not just my opinion that it's painstaking, of the concept of the maze. And what really happened when we wrote the book is that we discovered, oh, my God, there is a huge, there is a monster lurking under the concept of mazes. And when we did our research, we found lots of great books about, you know, here's a couple great things about mazes. There's a couple of huge. But when you start to look at mazes, they were, uh, uh, I don't want to get too derailed or anything, but I just want to go back again to uh, the myth of uh, the minotaur. And because we, we talk about specifically about the minotaur of the maze, and this is something that I just keep with me as I'm navigating all of these systems that I certainly navigate in my daily life, is is, is so minotaur. Uh, please correct me on some of the details, but they, there was a there was a maze, and the guy had to get through the maze and slay the minotaur at the end. And part of what he did was uh, th- th- is keep track of his position along the maze, right, with breadcrumbs or was it a string? String, yeah, so he keeps, a, he keeps a piece of string with him. And so when, you, when your only experiences of mazes is Olympic pizza, <laughs> uh, you don't really think about this string. But you should really keep that string with you uh, anytime you're navigating a maze. So what does this often mean? Uh, just keep track of what you're doing as you're doing it. For example, if you're trying to uh, learn all of this web programming, for example, which I know a lot of people are trying to do, and it's really great, is to save versions that exist along your way. These are your breadcrumbs. These are your string. Uh, this is just the, uh, uh, one of the things that comes out of, of, uh, of, our, of our research is to go back and use the methods that these people did, uh, find that maze, uh, find that crystalline structure, that one program that looks like 10 print, and find something that you can grab onto and recreate very quickly and make variations and teach yourself and learn about. And, of course, that completely uh, implies play. Uh, obviously, we're, we're, we're having a lot of fun here playing with this program. Uh, <laughs> and, and a lot of people on the web have had fun playing with the program, too. Uh, and and it, you know, The Commodore 64, it's a completely non-destructive type of a system. I'm not going to ruin anything by just taking it here. Unplugging these three cables, picking it up. Okay, there's a Commodore 64. I didn't break it. You know, we typed in all of the crazy commands. Oh, well, I can't plug it in. There, there you go. Turn it right. Turn it right back on, and uh, just just works again. Uh, all right, I'm gonna. I want to write like. Uh, I, I just want to write two programs, and then I'm I'm done talking. So the first program, I just want to illustrate the non-destructive nature. Of uh, the commodore sixty four as a platform, so this program is just going to write random values to the random memory on the computer. If you did this on your PC, you'd probably lose all your email, invalidate your Windows or whatever operating system you're running but i'm just going I'm just going to run it here this is a, a great platform. Uh, we, we, you know, this program, oh look, we're writing to some random color memory. Locations there, oh, right into some random screen memory and and this is a, this is a playful environment we we've taken if you notice this has the same elements as ten print, right? I told you you probably should learn it oh we we did some kind of crashy thing, but I'm not crying, oh look at we we messed it up so bad if I type basic commands, we can't even see anymore. Oh well, I guess I'll just turn it off and on again, <laughs> throw it in the gutter, and go buy another all right so. There was uh, one other program that I wanted to uh, share with you when I was talking about the growth of the platform because I think to some extent some of the people who read the book were a little bit perturbed that we're just writing this one program that just does a continuous output, and they don't kind of see themselves in it as an interactive element. So, uh, yeah, all right, give me a sec. All right, so if you remember the last program I wrote, this one has a few elements. It's uh familiar elements. It's got 10, it's got go to 10. It's an infinite loop that just does one poke, just like the 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 titular program. It also does the uh yeah, I never get to use big words <laughs> during the day, so I'm, I'm <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I think I have to look that up. I can't even So, <laughs> but anyway, uh uh, uh this is the idea here is I've introduced one new element, okay? So when you're when you're going out there and you're making these systems from all of your modules, you have to you have to keep in mind what new modules can I bring that are going to give new functionality? So the new functionality here is this Peak 197. What that does is that's that's a magical memory location that is guaranteed by the fixed architecture of the Commodore 64 to always contain a number. Uh, representing which key you're pressing on the keyboard. So what this does is immediately take us out of this infinite loop space and bring us into the interactive space. Okay, so we're starting at the top left of the screen. Uh, I, I did something else where I used the TI variable, which is a continuously incrementing variable representing the timer. So it's reading the keyboard. We're not pressing anything. So it's not going to do anything until I press it. And I'm just going to wait till it gets to the top. So now you can see... I've instantly made an interactive program. Uh, There's one other change I wanted to make, too, that I discovered beforehand here. Again, we're just gonna use this completely flexible platform.
1: Uh, See, that syntax error in 10, that was from the original basic. That, That was friendly language to let the novice programmers know where to look for the error. the only only line of the program. Okay,
4: Okay, so I brought back the program. I just kind of shifted the range so that we could get into the graphics characters a little bit. So I've converted this from a system where it makes the so-called killer impressive demo of you sit there and you watch a maze appear to you sit there and you type random keys and you try to find some graphics characters that might... uh, that maybe you could use to either express an idea, create some texture, uh, anything with the visual arts. So I'm pressing down clear home, and it's printing out that three-pronged character. Uh, I'm going to switch to the one next to it. Oh, that's a boring one. Press F1. Okay, that's, that's kind of like a similar character, but it's at a different height there. So like okay that's fun yeah I guess uh, I guess maybe I'll design myself an interactive system, <laughs> but you know that's just kind of like a bunch of colors on the screen. I mean, uh.
1: and these uh, the graphical characters that we see are part of the Pets-ski, uh character set. Um, it's an extension of the standard ASCII character set. These graphical characters which enabled early versions, like, you didn't have to program sprites. You actually had a little playing card uh, icon, so you wouldn't have to do so much
4: programming. Yeah, we talk a lot about uh, Petski and how uh, it's it's modern version Unicode. You can see here's the spade symbol, useful. So I modified the program to, yes, it worked, (laughs) right to the color memory. So we're keeping the same things there, but now when we press a key, uh, we can get different colors out. So this adds, like another level. So you see, I only added a few elements to this modular system, and uh, I'm growing the platform out in different directions. Uh, let's see. So then, th- 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 this also brings into uh, the kind of thing where there's, there's timing involved in the platform. We didn't really get much into there. But So, so my U produces that white color, and my I... Oh that makes the same all right, so we get this orange color, lovely orange color, and then the u so what we could try to do now is get in sync with the uh with the drawing line and make alternate colors, yeah, and if we're for if we're really good, we could try and make one side one color and make another side another color. We're not really good. <laughs> We're adequate. (laughs) Ah, But don't don't you start to feel the challenge like sort of coming at you saying, wait a minute, all right, right, I'm starting to get this. Well, there's like... Ah, See, there's an artifact of my my own movement there. And then let's just bring this into uh, one final domain. I promise I'll stop. Thank you. (laughs) We're going to bring this into this. Okay. So again, this is like the same vein of programs we've been writing where we have... We have a, a go-to statement. And does anyone remember what Peak197 does? Okay, that that is the value that... Um, so that's, that's the thing. When you go out and you make these systems, pay attention to what people are doing and say, look what that dude did. Oh, I want that for myself. It's information. You can copy it. You can incorporate it into your own work. Uh, all right, let's see if we get... Okay, so this isn't a sophisticated sound program, but... I believe that by pressing different keys, I can access different sounds in the sound chip. <laughs> All right, All right so, that, so really that demo is just to show you how, how we could just take another module, combine it with another one, and expand out and grow our platform into yet another space. So I hope you make use of that uh, in your work.
2: All right. So, I, you know, we could talk amongst ourselves, but since we did that over the 18 months that we wrote the book maybe it would be a good time to open this to questions from uh, those of you. Particularly those of you in the back half of the room, <laughs> which is everyone. <laughs> um, are there uh, are there some questions? I'm, if, if there aren't any, I'm going to have Noah manipulate this program further. <laughs>
5: Two things that uh, I think you gestured toward in your talk, or some of you, and it would be interesting to hear you uh, talk about them a bit more. Uh, one is I think I got that the, you obviously talked a lot about randomness, and I, that the choice of the code itself was somewhat random or random memory. If that's true, is there, I mean, I could see there being a commentary on writing about a text that itself was randomly chosen. So I don't know if that's intentional or if there's something there. Um, yeah,
2: so I think someone, someone used the word random to describe, you know, having remember the program, maybe John or something. But it's sort of, it's like one of those cases when we say, like, uh, you know, this does something very basic. It's like, oh, wait a moment. We're not talking about the programming language basic. We're talking about, yeah. So um, it wasn't a, no, it wasn't a random choice. I mean, particularly um, we, you know, I brought the program up, because I thought it was an interesting, very, very small piece of code. I'm interested in very small computational systems that do interesting things aesthetically, visually or otherwise. And um, it did not, I I thought also that critical code studies, a lot of people very early on in critical, it's still early, but this is er, even earlier, very early on in critical code studies, were getting overly interested in the trappings of programs, Mm -hmm. comments and variable names and... And, and sort of things around them, and uh, which, which... Well, I don't mean to suggest that these things aren't important at all, but if we're not really talking about the program and how it functions, it's really hard to understand those elements properly. So I wanted to bring something in that that didn't have comments, didn't have, in fact, even variable names, because it has no variables, um, doesn't even have a purpose that we know of, isn't really in a category We can't call it's not like antivirus software or something like what is it? We don't you know it's a one-liner, basic program. But so something that would that would compel us to think about um, computation and programming in new ways.
5: Are there other comments on that or just yeah? Just the follow-up is um, or it's not really a follow-up, just separate. uh, You obviously chose for this to be a collaborative project for a reason, but I don't know if you've spelled that out exactly here um and so it would just be interesting to know why what was the benefit of of working together to call this out particularly because it would seem to me and i could be wrong about this that the the i you were using new platforms to be able to enable the collaborative writing and it could be that that, that 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 that's something that you know i don't i don't know if the collaborative element is something that could be traced back to this kind of platform or this kind of programming in some way or um, you know, I guess what, what does the collaborative element bring to the ar- to the argument or the project?
2: Well, those are separate questions. But so I'll let someone answer about what the collaborative element brings to the project. But sort of does it you know particularly rhyme with this? Pro- like it is true that a lot of software was develop- has is developed collaboratively. You know, like Linux and you know Apache and uh, and all of these like you know open source. Pro- but I mean Windows is also developed collaboratively. It's a proprietary software too, right? Um, it seems unlikely that there was a uh, 10-person collaboration that resulted in this one-line program, right? It's, I mean, it certainly was transmitted through people, at, like, entered culture in different ways, it, the variants. But we weren't trying to model something about the way that particular program, you know, was put together. So that wasn't the aspect. As for, as for how the collaboration sort of worked, why we did it, let me see if, and, and how, you know, how it, how it went. Is there anyone wanting to discuss that? more?
1: Um, now I don't know what I was going to say.
2: <laughs>
1: no, uh, the, the idea, like, why 10 of us and and did it require 10 people to write about one line of code? And I think, uh, P- Patsy alluded to this, th- no one person could have done this, and we all brought different strengths and, and perspectives to the table and, and weaknesses. Um, but, like, I mean, the, the perspective of non-programmers was, I think, essential and, and totally vital for making this pr- opening up this project and, and viewing it in a humanistic way. On the other hand, having people who know the inside and out of a Commodore 64 was, was just as uh, essential. So I think we all brought different strengths. Um, most of us, I think, ended up making some sort of port or some sort of translation, and I... Th- just that collective um, perspective was very valuable. I think as for the like the technical side of of writing, we used basically uh, Wikimedia, the same software that runs uh, Wikipedia, and it it provided a kind of a version control. So there was when, when you didn't like someone's revisions, you could just you know go back, undo them, see the diff, and see what people had had made changes of. And then if that person didn't like the changes, you know, you could go back and change those. We didn't really encounter those kind of edit wars that you see on other collaborative platforms because we had a lot of other um, collaborative moments. Oftentimes there might be three of us who would just have a Skype window open in the background while we wrote. So we said, okay, from you know, 9 to midnight, we're just going to have a writing session. We'll keep Skype open in the background, and if we want to have a chat about something, we'll do that. So it w- w- really was a kind of interesting um, blend of technology to help with the writing. Anybody else want to add? Excellent. Um, I, I, um,
6: as, I, as I watch this um, presentation and some of the things you're talking about, the way in which you put this together and the excitement of interacting with each other and so forth. Then I think of the fact that you chose a book format for a programmatic subject, an algorithmic interactive uh, dynamic. Could you speculate a little bit on the tensions and conflicts between the book as an object and the programmatic uh, energy and interactivity of the programmatic space as an aesthetic issue or as a media issue or just some of the tensions involved in that.
0: I have to say that while we were writing this, I wondered about this many times. And I, my touchstone was that poetry was an oral tradition, and we've often written long books about poems. And so I kept writing.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: But I but I wonder if, you know, what what would a, an electronic version of this look like that isn't mm-hmm. just a PDF, I mean, of the book? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll let you guys
1: hey, It's too bad Casey's, Casey's not here because um, when the book f- first came out, um, he posted, like, some... Uh, you know, variations of temprint on different processing forums and there was just uh, this huge outpouring of different people experimenting online so I, th- I think the, the, there's a fluidity between the book and the online presence that is, um, I think it's easy to forget it's, it's there so I think just because it's in a book doesn't prevent people from uh, kind of exploring the same concepts online. Yeah, one thing uh, I could
4: add is uh, when you write on a, a wiki, uh, there's I find there's one huge division between WYSIWYG mode, what you see is what you get, versus the, uh, what do they call it, markdown, to differentiate themselves from markup. Uh, I, our system, we did not have WYSIWYG enabled, so I would often find myself, when you're talking about tensions, I would often find myself... Uh, Coming home, sitting down, reading a section, seeing what people said. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, build up the ideas, reach my five plus or minus two thoughts, and then say, okay, I know exactly how to flesh this out. Press edit, and then (laughs) it's like an airplane crash because the screen itself is immediately disrupted and uh, I, I guess that means unconsciously we build some kind of memory of the page and the location of where stuff is, even if it's on a screen page. Uh, suddenly, I'm like, "Oh, I was going to edit that line. I had it in my memory here. You know, I didn't memorize it as being next to the word because I memorized it as up here. And it, often the section of text that you're going to edit is just you know in a random. use of random but in a surprise location on the page and there goes one two three of those five plus or minus two memory cells that so that's one tension between wikis. so since then i've uh i've done inspired by this project i never thought to collaborate like this over wiki but i've started a couple more collaborations with wikis people at, at work and outside of work and i say please enable WYSIWYG mode that's that's one key differentiator
2: yeah, I was just gonna say that the trick on that note is you have to think of that line the same way that you do of like peak 197, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And then it's like no problem to remember it. Okay. All right. So that's one of those. yeah. Oh, let me uh, do, let's see. Does this do? Yeah. So f- this is just uh, I'm gonna hand this out. while the next question's being queued up. But uh, Francois Morlet, uh, who's one of the one of the people we refer to in the book and discuss, right? He has the, this is a piece of his that's in the permanent. Um, collection of the Santre pompidou and it's, uh, there are six paintings that are, that are painted uh, using the parity of the digits of pi, so the first three, one, four uh, one uh, we have three of these are odd and one is even so that's why the first square is like this and of course you could do this for any system, in fact, so you can imagine, like, right, Morley paintings of this sort for any, there's, there's uh, <coughs> um 2 to the 4th of them possible, right? There's 16 of them possible. And it turns out that each of them can be represented in a single character on the Commodore 64. So this is just a program to just produce Morellet paintings of this sort um, infinitely, and uh, it's in a single line of uh, Commodore 64
7: Basic. So, So, uh, really interesting stuff. As a person who has limited understanding of, you know, programming languages, I, I found this, you know, this part of it fascinating, interesting, and, and a little bit goofy, which is kind of awesome, too. Um, I, I'm, I'm really interested in the process, though, of 10 people, and, and I, Patsy, at one point, you said, you know, in one voice, uh, writing a book together. And uh, what I what I kind of am curious about is actually those Um, what you've alluded to, those moments of conflict or tension in that writing process, where what happens when you have theoretical difference of opinion or ideological difference of opinion and you're trying to hash out um, a statement or or a commentary about this thing. I I really want to know, even just anecdotally, if you felt like sharing, you know, because it's hard to write a book alone when you have difference of opinion in your own head, let alone with ten people. So I'm really curious about that part of the whole process of the writing. I want the
3: dirt. That's, that's <laughs> <what> I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I it, I don't know if it's what you were referring to, but the, the one thing that I had mentioned earlier about the, uh, HTML as a successor to BASIC. Um, I say that, and I, I make the claim that, yeah, I, I put that in somebody else, <laughs> and other people disagreed one way or the other, but the thing that's actually a really good thing when we're trying to bring all of these people together, right? We've, we've got an original text that's less than 80 characters long and we're producing a couple hundred pages of book out of it. Right. So yeah, we need to be able to pull all those other things in now. Conflict. I I don't think there was a lot of actual conflict on this, you know, I mean, there's, Somebody put something forward, and then somebody else says, "Well, no, I think that's wrong." and we talk about it, and we come to a rational conclusion. Um, I, I remember one of the first things that uh, actually in the original post that I replied to, uh, I said that, well, this program's great because it demonstrates lots of fundamental aspects of programming, like right you 've got loops, you've got variables, you 've got iteration. There's no iteration chapter in this. Uh, The reason for that is because I started to write it out, and uh, I made the argument that, yes, there is no iteration in this program. It's an iteration that's happening as a result of the nature of the Commodore 64, where it's got these other internal things that aren't visible within BASIC itself. So there's this kind of iteration concept, but there is no actual iteration going on. And so by the time I got to the end of that argument, I put it up on the wiki, and I remember uh, getting an email back from Nick and said, this is a really good argument. Unfortunately, you've convinced me that 10print doesn't actually inter- iterate. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I agreed with that. <laughs> you know, I, I was stretching the point, but I was stretching the point to make a different point. But I, I have no problem with taking that out at that point because yeah, you're right.
1: I wanted to say, like, when we finally got to the process of um, MIT Press sending it out to external reviewers, um, we had already been kind of through a peer review, like, many, many, many times. And I think we were our, our own harshest critics, but, but not, not in a confrontational way. And I, I would say that there really was a consensus um, moment. And I, I think having some of the, the face-to-face uh, talks, uh, the, the Skype chats, and, and working in smaller groups, so maybe three people would be working on a single chapter rather than, than all of us, and then we hand it over to everybody. I think that all helped. Now, I was, uh, I was rereading some of the chapters that I worked on heavily uh, coming up here today, and I couldn't remember what lines were mine. I couldn't remember who wrote them. Um, it w- really was kind of remarkable how... Um, how that there is that one voice, and I don't think it's the case that the voice is just bland. I mean, you could have a very corporate sounding or bureaucratic uh, v- voice, but I think there, there's some charisma or personality in the voice, at least in, in, in many spots in the book.: metanoia. <laughs> don't the metanoia. There's, there's
4: metanoia. Yeah, oh, I got one more conflict. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of conflict about whether it actually produces a maze. So, yes. okay. that's, that's your conflict, yeah. Yeah, well, go ahead. Go ahead. yeah I, I just remember a lot of, I wasn't so involved in that one, but I remember watching a lot fly about uh, the definition of a maze. And uh, I, I think we're kind of lucky, uh, at least in that, that episode, because there's, you know, people who do talk about the definitions of these things. So it gave us a chance to, to go and, and get opinions and do research.
0: On the maze question, for example, we discussed at length whether it was a maze or a labyrinth, or whether it was either. And one of the things I did was to look for those words in other languages to see if, the, if other languages made the same distinctions that people did in English using, et cetera, et cetera. So there were questions and differences of opinion, but we settled them. I mean, and, it and certainly answer, was, it wasn't very contentious. The, the answer to that is no,
2: they're not distinguished in other languages generally,
0: right? In English, they're not distinguished. In a lot of other languages, there's only one word. No, right, right,
2: right. I was going to say this yeah, right. Right. right, so the maze and labyrinth are like our different types of snow in English, right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't go there. I'm just going to... This, this one, you can, you can guess which artist is being imitated in this one-line Commodore 64 Basic program?
0: No, they don't
2: know this <laughs>
4: I wish
3: Casey was here. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs>
6: we have a prize.
0: <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, there Comments? Was... Further questions?
6: Well, I think we're uh, all questioned out here. Uh, I want to thank you for a, a wonderful, dynamic uh, illustration of your book. Uh, it's <laughs> wonderful. Uh, I find it quite fascinating, and uh, I think many people here do too, and we will, we're very grateful for you coming, and uh, thanks very much. Thanks. Cheers.